Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this LeanPub Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Jason Gilmore. Based in Ohio, Jason is the best-selling author of a number of books, including Easy Laravel 5, a hands-on introduction using a real-world project, and Easy E-Commerce using Laravel and Stripe, selling products and subscriptions. He's also a popular author with hundreds of articles published online and the co-founder of the very popular CodeMash conference. You can follow Jason on Twitter at WJGilmore and learn more about him and his work from his website, WJGilmore.com. In this interview, we're going to focus on what Jason has been up to in the last few years since I first interviewed him for this podcast, and we'll also talk about his latest updates to his book, Easy Laravel 5. I should mention um, that this interview is part of a series of interviews that we're doing to mark the 2018 Laracon EU conference in Amsterdam, uh, which LeanPub is a minor sponsor of this year. So thank you, Jason, for being on the Front Matter podcast again. Well, thank you very much for having me, Len. I appreciate it. Um, normally in these interviews, we talk about the author's personal and professional background, uh, but in this case, we've already covered that ground in a previous interview. So I thought I'd just ask you um, what you've been up to in the last three years. Uh, maybe if you could talk about some of the projects you've been working on. I know you, you worked on a Rails project for an app for the interior design industry. I did. So since we last spoke, I've worked on a number of projects. So just a bit of background for the listeners. I spent the majority of the last 20 years working as a, an independent contractor and consultant, spending the majority of that time working on uh, web-related uh, projects, primarily pertaining to e-commerce, but also doing some analytics work, and uh, more recently work in the uh, telecom industry. So... Um, I guess since we last spoke, I think I've worked on perhaps four major contracts, uh, one of which was, in fact, a Rails project uh, for a great architecture and design startup called the Gather App. So what the Gather App is, it's a, a SaaS, and it focuses on, again, the architecture and design industries. And then what it does is it allows these firms, these interior design firms, these architectural firms to manage all of their project assets in a single location and then provide their customers and teammates with easy access to those so they could comment on the different assets, such as the, the type of material being used for a, a wall or uh, what types of chairs might be placed in a particular room. So it's a um, a project management application, but it's also um, it's also an asset management application. And it just allows these companies to to better manage these projects in a highly visual way, which of course would be would be very useful for uh, those types of companies. And could customers interact with this as well? So if 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 a, a design company had a client, could they show the client designs through the app and things like that? That's exactly right. So there was a significant role, R-O-L-E, role-based feature in which these uh, the companies could invite their customers or can invite their customers to uh, join a project. And in doing so, they are provided with access to the project descriptions, the assets. They can add reviews and comments regarding these different assets and um, ultimately, it just helps the um, the project flow much easier because no longer is the firm and the client required to constantly meet in per person to look at 
either um, versions of the the assets on on paper or on a laptop. They can instead just share these uh, project attributes at will by way of the app. That sounds like a really good idea. Um, I have a friend who obsessively spent a couple of years designing a house from scratch, and you know, talking to him about it, you know, from the you know beginning of the design to the final like construction of the place, it was the interactions with all these different people um, that he had to do in person that was one of the hardest sort of aspects of things to manage. Oh, I would certainly imagine so. Par- particularly given the highly visual nature of that project. Of course, you want a wall to look a certain way or you want a lampshade to be a certain color. So it it certainly helps to have everything placed in front of you in uh, this electronic format, which you can return to and comment upon and uh, make make changes as necessary. So it's um, it's a great product. Again, it's thegatherapp.com. And I'm sure we can include the link in the, the show notes um, if anybody wanted to check it out. Yeah, I'll definitely, I'll definitely add that. Um, we were talking before this interview, you also worked on a, what sounded like a really interesting project, um, working on an e-commerce analytics application for a globally recognized publisher. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that really interesting project. Yes, this was another um, pretty large project that went on for quite some time and, and really was one of the probably favorite projects that I've worked on throughout my career. So as you well know, working in the publish industry, it's, it's um, very beneficial to a publisher to be able to accurately predict what topics are going to be naturally of interest to readers. Uh, and if that's a very difficult task to do as well. In, a, in another life years ago, I actually worked as an editor for uh, two different publishers. And we spend a lot of time trying to um, make these predictions. And you would, of course, do so by talking to people in the industry and doing quite a bit of reading online and basically attempting to fit these pieces of a, of a puzzle together, which ultimately, hopefully, give you um, an idea as to what the market for a particular book topic is going to be down the road. And when I say down the road, typically you're looking at anywhere between six to 12 months for the particular type of, of books that this, that this publisher published. So, and, and it's also a very time consuming and costly process to put these books together. So you want to get it right more than you get it wrong, I guess is what I'm ultimately saying. So what we did, and this was very much a, a mad science experiment, I guess, what we wanted to try to do is figure out if we could grade topics and um, effectively assign almost like a credit score to a topic in order to determine its worthiness down the road. And we wound up tracking, I believe the number was 10,000 topics by the time the the, uh, project was made available the application was made available to the editorial staff. And we did exactly that. We graded each topic. And we did that by mining the web, whether it was Twitter or Amazon was a big data source, of course, because you wanted to know what similar books, how they were doing. 
um, really any related online data source that we could we could monitor, we attempted to do so. And we brought all of that data together and a lot of it we pushed into a Neo4j graph database and that allowed us to make connections that were otherwise very opaque if one of us, if a human was staring at all of this data, it wasn't obvious at all what, whether a, a customer who purchased book A, whether they were going to be interested in purchasing a completely unrelated book C or book D. So that all of that data combined with a Neo4j database did a miraculous job of helping us ferret out those those interesting relationships and um, really did have a positive, I should say, I, I certainly hope the project's still ongoing now, uh, does have a, um, a positive impact on that editorial staff's ability to to make those decisions. So very fun project. Very fun indeed. That sounds really fun and, and just really fascinating. Um, it reminds me of a blog post I read recently. I think it was from a little bit, a little while ago, but it was by someone who blogs about self-publishing and his post was called, please don't buy my book. Um, and what had happened to him was he was self-publishing on Amazon and um, Amazon has this feature called also bought, uh, which yes. I think anyone who's been on there is probably familiar with it. You know, if, if like other people who bought this thing you just bought, they also bought this other thing. And so what this author had done was he had done what one conventionally thinks is the right thing to do. When he launched a book, he told all of his friends and family about it in order to boost sales. Um, unfortunately for him, uh, let's say, I forget exactly what it was, but let's say he wrote a, a you know, a book about vampire werewolves. Uh, none of his friends and family typically bought vampire werewolf books. And so when they all jumped in and bought his newly published book, um, it sort of scrambled Amazon's, Amazon's algorithm and it could, it just, it sort of buried the book because it looked like this book wouldn't succeed because there was no kind of coherence to the community of people that were buying it. I'll be darned. Yeah, and it's you were just making me think of how interesting it is that, you know, with all this sophisticated uh, analysis of data going on, you know, someone, if you're, if, you're, if, you're pitching a publish, if you're pitching a book to a publisher and they've got a tool like that, but you don't have any transparency into it, I'm just thinking about this from the, from the perspective of an author, it might seem like a, yet another barrier to getting a project accepted. Is this, was the publisher communicating the information it was finding to potential authors? I don't know. I, I don't have any insight into that. Um, in, in the end, I mean, again, just reflecting back on my past experience as an editor, you certainly drew upon as many data sources as you could because you wanted some analytical backing um, regarding your decision-making process. But at the same time, a lot of it was intuition. Will this particular author do a solid job of putting together this particular book, right? Do they have enough expertise? Does the topic seem like it is going to uh, resonate with a, a minimum number of people that would make the project economically viable? And sometimes those decisions are um, it, it's, I think it's more of an art than a science in some cases. You're just relying on past experience and intuition to, to make those decisions. So 
if anything, I would imagine it played some role, but I really doubt it was the, um, it, it, I, it, I doubt it was the final word in the decision-making process to, to be sure. Yeah. Thank, thank, thanks for that really good answer. It's, it's interesting. A lot of people, um, sort of fetishize, uh, computer technology and sort of think, well, now that, now that decisions are behind algorithms, that's somehow categorically less fair or more arbitrary than it was before. Uh, and it's like, no, in the past it was often, you know, personality, um, uh, you know, was kind of what, what mood a publisher was in, uh, when you pitched them an idea and things like that might've been much more, you know, likely to drive, drive decisions. Um, and, uh, actually in many ways, having tools like the one that you built driving decisions can actually make things more fair and objective even. Absolutely. And really, I mean, the, the book business is in many ways no different than the movie making business or the, the music business. You're, you're attempting to gauge consumer taste and interest, right? And that's a very fickle, fickle thing to attempt to discern, right? Oh, definitely. Some, some publishers and, and producers seem like they, they, they get it more right than wrong, but they're they're certainly in the minority, right? It's, it's they're all tough businesses to be in. So you, you of course look for any any way to um, make those decisions better and make them more effectively. And I think hopefully that that tool wound up doing that. But regardless, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, so since we've got a little bit of a Laravel theme going on here, um, I've, uh, there are a couple of projects that you uh, did in Laravel that I wanted to talk to you about that sounded uh, really cool. Um, and uh, when we were talking before this interview, it reminded me I was um, interviewing Taylor Otwell, the creator of Laravel, just on just a couple of days ago. And I asked him, you know, what's the typical product that Laravel is used to make? And he said, you know what, there are just so many, you know, I can't sort of pick it out of, pick any example out from the ether. And he talked about a, a couple of really interesting application or applications he'd seen using Laravel, one of which included uh, an app that was used in, in the airline industry uh, that pilots used. And I thought, wow, that's just amazing that, you know, something that's open source is being used that, well, I mean, something like Laravel is being used for that kind of application and, and how mature it must be regarded to be used for something like that. Uh, and you, you worked on a project um, that involved robocall blockers, which sounded really interesting to me. If you could talk a little bit about that, that would be great. Absolutely. Uh, and this was certainly high on my favorite project list. Um, the, the, the robocall blocker is called Nomo Robo. So N-O-M-O-R-O-B-O. -O -O, so no more robocalls. And it was, or uh, the company was founded by uh, Aaron Foss, who I wound up working with him for two and a half years on the project, and now we're we're great friends. And Aaron has just come up with this ingenious way, frankly, to stop robocallers. And much of the technology used in this detection and prevention process is is Laravel. So Laravel, and uh, we use. Uh, Lumen as the API for the, um, the the mobile APIs that are used for the iPhone application and the Android application. And we also use um, machine learning to determine 
Um, so there's a large honey pot that is running and that honey pot is picking up these robo calls, uh, quite a few of them to say the least. And uh, so we use machine learning to determine whether it is a robocall that's being made to one of these honeypot phone numbers and then to classify it. So the robocalls are classified into, I believe, 39 different categories. And because the honeypot contains phone numbers with, with area codes all over the United States, you can actually determine in real time whether there is a for instance, an IRS scam that's going on in a particular city or a particular area code. And um, from that, you can, you can start to sort out all sorts of interesting things. And, um, but again, that whole project, the, the vast majority of it, built atop Laravel, Lumen, it handles a tremendous amount of traffic it integrates with um, certain telecom APIs, and that data is distributed out to various third parties. It's used within the iPhone and the Android applications. It was really a lot of fun to, to work on that project, and it was also, frankly, uh, very gratifying because some of these scams, these, these, these phone scams, um, they're actually quite dangerous to the call recipients and that that IRS scam is the best example of one because there are plenty of people out there who are falling victim to these these IRS scams and they're they're sending these scammers money and it's it's created quite a mess and there's also a lot of health insurance related scams out there as well so to be able to play a, a small role in helping to stomp out those robocallers on a, on a nationwide basis has, was very gratifying, and I'm, I'm, I was very glad to be part of that project. Um, speaking of the, that's a fascinating idea. I would not thought of the idea. I mean, it seems obvious once it's said, but the idea of having a honeypot out there, which you know, I imagine was a, a large number of phone numbers that were probably sort of made available um, to be found by by scammers, were there any human beings actually answering any of those calls to the honeypot? Um, I'm not sure I can get into any of that. Oh, no, no, <laughs> no, fair enough, fair enough. I just thought don't like on the details. No, no, no. That's, that. that's that's fair enough. I was just um, you were just reminding me of a, a friend of mine who, whenever he got a robocall where it was one of one of the calls where like you know that as soon as they it 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 realized there was a person on the other end then you'd get switched to an operator who would try to scam you and um he would he would deliberately like you know just kind of pour himself a glass of beer and just just try and waste the person's time yes uh, for as long as as long as he could possibly get away with it until they they found out until they figure it out and they would always get cur curiously they would always get really angry as soon yeah. as they discovered that the other person was screwing with them. Uh, and I don't know, I just found that like something fascinating about the personality of the kind of person who goes out in scams like that and then gets like indignant at their own time being wasted by yes. someone they were trying to trick. But uh, yes, that sounds like very good. And I imagine very interesting work because in security related work like that, the, the bad actors are always adapting and they're watching your techniques and your tactics. That that that's certainly correct, and I mean, and I I, I would imagine 
anybody, at least in the in the U.S. And, and I would imagine Canada as well, who receive robocalls on a regular basis will recognize the 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 change of tune that I'm about to describe. One of the one of the latest strategies is um, the the it's neighbor spoofing is how we referred to it, and it would be. Um, you'll receive a phone call from a number that looks like your own phone number, right? So the area code and the first three digits are identical, and then the last four digits are almost exactly like your phone number. And they, I, we believe the thinking there is that it because it looks like your own number, you're just concluding that it's somebody who you know because they're in your area code, they have your same same three digits, and um, the, the thinking is you're more likely to pick up the phone. So certainly they, uh, the robocallers do adapt their, their strategies and attempt to, well, be, be more efficient at what they do, I guess. So hopefully, not only no more over, but hopefully the other call blocking solutions out there are, are doing a good job of detecting and then adapting to those, those problems. It's a, it's a tough problem to solve and, yeah. and largely a task, believe it or not. <laughs> well, well, thank thank you uh, from from me, and I imagine many many listeners to this podcast for that for that kind of work. We all very much appreciate it. Um, you also mentioned that you worked on a Laravel project for an internet in uh, in South America. I was wondering if you could talk about that project. Sure, it was a another great project. It was an intranet application for a large agricultural concern. So their primary products are, um, if I recall correctly, avocados and grapes. So they're a large avocado and grape grower. And they approached me with this, this great idea about building an intranet application for, for farm management. And the, the company owner was an incredibly smart guy. He taught himself programming. In fact, he had started building this app. And I was looking for assistance. So they, um, they contacted me and we set about this, this months long odyssey of adding as many management features as we could to the app. And everything was Laravel based, is Laravel based. And by its conclusion, we were managing um, fertilizer application records, farm equipment management, payroll, vacation, um, um, information about different sectors of the farm in terms of what crops were planted there, how we plugged into real-time weather sensors on uh, that were spread throughout the farm in order to provide real-time weather data uh, associated with each sector. We, let me think, what else? We were calculating the comically i don't know the english word for it because i learned about a lot about the farm in spanish that just i don't speak spanish but the spanish terms for different things the um evaporation rate i guess it would be of the watering so if the sun's at a certain angle and the temperature's at a certain degree then the application of water um, changes because it, it, of course, evaporates either faster or slower. So we actually added calculators for making those sorts of determinations based on the information that was being fed in from the weather sensors. Great project. 
great company and it was a, a lot of fun. And again, one, another one of those projects that clearly was having a, although it was of course just internal to their farm, having a major impact on their business. And those are, those are the, those are the fun projects because you know that all of this hard work is really, really um, being put to good use, I guess. Yeah, it, it sounds really interesting. I've read a little bit about, um, I think, what you're describing, uh, the way technology is transforming farming in particular with respect to kind of microclimate uh, data collection and analysis so that farmers can actually know like what different parts, how different parts of their the very same field uh, should be managed based on things like elevation um, and how, I mean, I, I grew up in a farming community and so you always knew farmers knew that like, oh, that part of my land behaves this way during this part of the year and another part of my land might behave differently at the same time of year or under the same circumstances. Uh, but now that like, you know, people can collect data on like, you know, every couple of square meters, as I understand it. Yes, absolutely. And I, and uh, to be sure, I, I, anytime I walk into a grocery store, I, I never look at avocados or grapes in the same way because I have, have a deep appreciation for, the incredible amount of work that goes into growing and then of course harvesting and then uh, transporting those um, while those are any type of crop and, and um, hopefully that that uh, internet application is, is helping them do it at least a little bit more efficiently <laughs> um, and so you're now I don't I don't recall exactly how recently it was but you're now CTO of a company based in Silicon Valley called Dream Factory um, and I was wondering before you talk a little bit about your role as CTO, if you could talk about what Dream Factory does and how you came to be involved with them. Absolutely. Uh, Dream Factory is an API automation platform, automation and management platform. And what it does is it natively supports somewhere north of 50 different data sources. So, for example, uh, MySQL database or an Oracle database or Amazon, the Amazon S3 file system, what it can do is uh, generate REST APIs for these data sources in literally seconds. So if you, you enter the, uh, an associated set of credentials for one of those data sources, it will turn around and generate a REST API for you, fully uh, documented by way of uh, automated Swagger documentation that's generated along with the API, secured by way of, at minimum, requiring an API key, and uh, going beyond that, if you want user-level authentication, you can easily bolt on either basic auth or LDAP or Active Directory or single sign-on so in a nutshell, what it does is it turns what used to be and still is, if you're doing it manually, an incredibly tedious and error-prone process associated with writing these REST APIs yourself, it completely removes that. It turns it into a turnkey process. There's no code required. And literally within minutes, you can go from no API to a fully documented API secured that you're now starting to integrate into a client-side application, right? So it, it, if you think of these APIs as, 
as certainly very important plumbing for your application because you need to talk to these underlying data sources. It does all of that plumbing for you, and it allows you to instead focus on the more important customer-facing aspects of your application, such as the UI, the UX, and so on. And um, did they approach you or did you approach them for the CTO position? Um, just one of those, you know, wonderful coincidences in life, I guess. They um, had approached me to just do some contract work. And that went very well. And we, we hit it off. Just it was it was great to work together. And not soon, and that basically that contract morphed into a, um, a longer term contract. And before you know it, I think it was pretty obvious to everybody that we, we enjoyed working together, uh, at which point they um, invited me to join the company as the CTO. And I think I started the end of May and it, it's, it was, it was clear from day one that, that I had made the, the right decision because I'm, I'm having more fun than I've had in a long time uh, working with and talking about Dream Factory. It's a great, great staff. And um, we're working very hard every day to build the best API automation and management platform out there. Speaking of staff, so uh, as I understand it, Dream Factory is based in Silicon Valley and you're, in, you're all the way over in Ohio. Is that, is that correct? Uh, uh, it's correct that I'm in Ohio. Okay. Uh, Dream Factory is actually based out of Las Vegas now. Oh, they, they, the company. Yeah, so that, that's probably something we need to update <laughs> on the on the website. Um, yeah, the company was in uh, California and now it's based out of Vegas. But you're correct. I'm in I'm in Ohio, and our um, our CEO is actually based in Australia. And we have support staff and sales staff both in Vegas and California. So we're, like so many companies out there today, a largely remote, and it's working out fantastic. It's working out really, really well. Do you have any particular techniques that you use for remotely managing the team or interacting with the team? Um, we do. It's, it's very simple. Um, like like so many other companies out there, we're on Slack and communicate quite a bit throughout the day via via Slack. Not so much the, on the text side of things, although there there certainly is that. But we do hold quite a few calls over Slack, and uh, that seems like it's working out very well. Um, of course, like any software company, we have a, an issue management system, so we use Jira for that to make sure that that's regularly updated and, and you know, um, taking full advantage of, of Jira's various capabilities. Um, that's about it. I mean, we keep it simple. Um, I just, the, the use of both just the audio only and the, the video call capabilities of Slack it allows us to, to work as if really we were working in the, the same office together, right? Um, so that's been very advantageous. And of course, like so many other companies who have adopted remote working, it allows us to find the, the 
fantastically well-suited candidates to join the company no matter where they live because it's just really not that not I was just going to say not that big a deal but it's really not an issue at all for us it's worked out very well yeah it's really interesting I've spent a fair amount of my time working remotely um, and uh, you know this might date me a bit but you know things have changed quite a bit um, in the last 10 years quite dramatically with respect to the easiness of remote working I would say particularly um, you were mentioning video, uh, it kind of just works now yes. uh, in a way that it didn't in the past. And so you can have natural, easy, you know, switch them on, switch them off conversations, you know, kind of just like you could in the past by walking up to somebody and saying, Hey, do you have five minutes or something like that? And yeah, there's something kind of qualitative, at least in my observation that sort of changed just in the last few years where it, it crossed that kind of last mile. Uh, that it needed to cross to being really easy to get that done so that it wasn't, it wasn't tricky and didn't fail. I, I completely agree. And just referring back to Nomo Robo and um, Aaron, the, the, the company founder, I had mentioned that Aaron and I, in the years since I started working uh, with Nomo Robo, have become great friends. And this despite me spending 99% of my time working from my home office here in, in Columbus, Ohio, and Aaron working out of an office in on Long Island, right? But almost every day during the time we worked together, <clears throat> it was conducted at, actually at first over, over Skype, and then uh, the company adopted Slack at some point. But we were on video call almost every day, Monday through Friday, just discussing various ongoings with the company. And we did not meet in person. I think, I know it was for more than a year, but we, we, we finally did get together actually in Cincinnati, just south of me. And you'd have thought we'd been working in the same office together the whole time. I mean, it was, it was just, there was nothing to it. Very natural. Um, it was, just like we are at working like we had any other day, right? But you're right. And that was the first client that I can really recall. So that started in 15, where we regularly used video calling every day because it had gotten so much better at that point. Whereas in the past, it was, it just never seemed to quite work. <laughs> and you're right. It has a tremendous impact on the quality of working remotely because again, you get, you're you're seeing your colleagues on a regular basis, and it just it just has changed things for the better uh, quite a bit. Yeah, it's really interesting. One of the analogies I use when trying to describe sort of technologies crossing that threshold is, you know, imagine if you had a hammer that just didn't work ten percent of the time. That's right. Uh, you you can't you can't get into a natural you can't forget about the hammer if it doesn't work 100% of the time. If it works 100% of the time, you can actually forget about it. The, the, the technology, as it were, kind of fades away and you're just doing your work. Uh, but, and yeah, and the technologies like, um, I mean, obviously there was, you know, chat has worked for a long time, but something about the combination of video and the very particular product, Slack, uh, has made it just so efficient and natural to work together um, across, you know, these vast spaces that we don't even notice that we're doing that anymore. Absolutely. You're, you're absolutely correct. Um, moving on to your, your book, Easy Laravel 5, um, I know you uh, did a pretty big update in February this year. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, uh, 
what that update was. I did. So <clears throat> as Len, <clears throat> to the listeners out there, as Len uh, well knows, I, I love talking about LeanPub because the the ability to to write and update these self-published books is, is LeanPub has just made it so, so much easier to do. Um, so of course I, my, my books, all of my self-published books are on lean pub and I, from the time, the first, very first edition, I, if you will, of the book was published back in 2015, I've made hundreds of updates to the book because I manage the book in, in, on GitHub. I make my changes. I push them up to lean pub and it's a very convenient process and in in doing so I can fix bugs and improve wording and change code, et cetera, in a very fluid fashion. But what I like to do on occasion, and I've probably done this oh, maybe half a dozen times, is I like to roll out a more ambitious update to the book. And the most recent ambitious update, if you will, came back in February of this year. And that update included just a, a number of changes and improvements, and I think I added two or maybe three new chapters. But more importantly and more significant for readers, I completely revamped the companion project that's associated with the book. So with all of my recent books, I am very much a proponent of the reader learning by doing. And of the, I, I don't know what this number is, but of the, the certainly more than 10,000 reader emails I've answered going back 20 years now, probably the number one question is, what should I build? And I don't, I don't have an answer for what a reader should build. <clears throat> so I try and help them answer that question by providing a companion project. And the companion project... And in this case, it's the Hacker Pair project? That's exactly right. So, in, And in the February update, I ripped out the old companion project and replaced all of that material with a new companion project called Hacker Pair. And Hacker Pair was just this idea I had. It's, it's almost like a... You can think of it as a social network for tech learning and teaching. So if you are really into uh, Python or Rails or what have you, you can indicate on the, the demo site, it's just a, it's a demo project, you can indicate, I would like to teach Rails or I would like to teach Python and I'm in this particular city or zip code. And then somebody who wants to learn Rails or Python or what have you, can do a search for individuals willing to teach on that topic within X miles of uh, said zip code. So what a project like that does from a teaching perspective is it incorporates many of the most popular Laravel features, user authentication, registration, database relationships, forms integration, um, in the case of the, the radius-based search, it integrates, um, uh, I, can't, I think it's called the Haversine equation, into the, um, one of the models. So it just provides um, 
a lot of opportunity to introduce Laravel features by way of a project that is, you know, something that you might see in the real world. So that was the major update in the February release. Um, I see on your webpage, uh, easylaravelbook.com slash purchase, uh, where people can go to buy the book, you you actually offer three products for sale there, one of which is the book, one of which is the book plus videos, and one is the book plus videos plus consultation. Uh, this is a model we've seen uh, other other authors use. Uh, how have you found this has worked out for readers? Do, do you get quite a few buying the consultation package? Uh, relative to the number of books sold, no, it's a it's a lower number. It's a more expensive option. Not everybody needs it, et cetera. However, however, it has proved to be a tremendous marketing tool for consulting and and development contracts. And for instance, so this is all bringing everything full circle. Uh, Nomo Robo, I met Aaron because he purchased a the consulting package. So I could have a look at a particular bit of code that he was working on for Nomo Robo. Um, the agricultural contract came by way of uh, the, the company owner's purchase. I think he had purchased actually two class, two, two hours worth of, of consulting. And that was a, um, a, a teaching specific um, that the, the time spent with him was teaching specific. So I was teaching him Laravel. And in both cases, it was just a kind of a natural fit to, to work together. We got along well. And the next thing you know, both of those purchases turned into um, consulting and contracting engagements that, I mean, in the case of Noma Robo, spanned almost three years. So it's a great, great tool. And I recommend that any lean pub author who, who spends time doing contract and consulting, I absolutely recommend they do the same because it's a great way to meet at least some of your readers. Uh, it's a great way to obviously have a great upsell, of course, with the package. And it's a potential way to, to land new consulting and contracts, uh, contracting projects. That's really uh, a great story. You've reminded me, I'm going to have to indulge, uh, if you'll indulge me, um, my co-founders, uh, Peter and Scott, once landed a, a very big client with, who we worked with for many years uh, because one of the client's employees had pirated Peter's, one of Peter's books and had pirated one of Scott's books and then realized that they both worked together. Uh, <laughs> and, that's how, and that's how, you know, we got that, that big client. Um, and so I was just, I just wanted to add that in addition to selling books, you know, just being, it, it's just so important to understand that just being discovered somehow is the most important thing for getting clients and, and building your profile. A absolutely. Yes. And I, I, as I mentioned, I worked in publishing in years past and, and so often hear individuals, most of whom comically or coincidentally have never actually written a book say, well, there's no, there's no money to be made in tech publishing. And the most accurate answer to that is you're right. If, if we're looking at this from a pure royalty perspective, a pure sales perspective, at least by way of traditional publishing, uh, traditional publishing, um, only, I don't know, 8 to 
I, and I'm, I guess I'm, I'm making a little bit of a generalization here, but it's based on past experience. Only about, let's, let's say 10% of um, these books actually make a, a significant amount of money. And the others either break even or, frankly, they, they lose money. But now, of course, that completely changes from an independent publishing perspective because your margins are so much higher. Um, but leaving all of that aside, leaving the sales aside, the royalties aside, et cetera, you greatly increase the likelihood of, as you just mentioned, being discovered. And whether you are seeking full-time employment with a company or you're seeking new contracts uh, or consulting engagements, well, there's a lot to be said about hiring somebody who, quote-unquote, wrote the book about the topic, right? And in all honesty, by way of writing the book, you learn a heck of a lot more about that technology than you otherwise would have because it's, of course, so important to get it right <laughs> for the reader, right? You want to make sure that you're accurate and you're presenting practical information. So you become much more proficient in that topic by way of writing the book and then in return for hopefully all of that work you've done researching and writing the book, you earn more exposure and wind up talking to a lot more uh, fellow programmers and companies and organizations than, than you otherwise would have had you not written the book. So is there money to be made in writing a tech book? The answer is absolutely yes, there is. It's just not going to come, all come, I should say, from a single source, like namely sales. Thanks for that really great answer. Um, I couldn't have said it better myself, that's for sure. Um, uh, speaking of speaking to other people, um, uh, I guess my last question is I'd like to catch up with you a little bit about CodeMash. Um, we spoke about that in our first interview three years ago, and I was wondering if you could talk about how the conference has gone since then. Yeah, so in the, in the years since we last spoke, I, it must not have been too terribly long after that, I actually, quote-unquote, retired from... Um, significant code mash involvement. I, um, when we founded the, the conference, I think it was 13 years ago. So 2006, 2005, one or the other, you'd think I would know this, I guess. Um, um, I wound up sitting on the board and ran the, I was the speaker chair throughout that period for 10 years and then after the conclusion of the 10th conference, I had just concluded it was time for, uh, you know, somebody fresh and new to, to take my place. And I actually wasn't even married nor had children at the time we founded the event. Well, now I have three young children. Well, congratulations. And three very young children. And, um, of course, they, they, they consume quite a bit of daddy's time. And... As anybody who's managed conferences would tell you, uh, doing so is like having a second full-time job. It's just a tremendous amount of work, especially given the, the size to which CodeMash has grown over 13 years. I think at the last event in January, there were 2,200 attendees, something along those lines. Wow. But then in addition to that, there's a, a conference within a conference called KidsMash. And KidsMash is 
CodeMash, geared for children anywhere between the ages of two and 15 or 16 or something like that, and they spend uh, four or five days learning STEM topics. So whether it's Lego robotics or origami or um, balloon animal making or um, building a lightsaber, uh, you name it, there's this conference within a conference. And I think last year, I think there were a thousand kids at that event. So um, that's a very long answer to your question. I, in the last three years, I've actually um, attended as a spectator or an attendee to the events rather than an organizer. So it's been pretty interesting seeing the event through an attendee's eyes and I can certainly say that the organizers continue to just do a, a, a tremendous job and outdo themselves uh, every year. And for those listeners who haven't heard of CodeMash before, I'll just throw in an oh, by the way. Oh, by the way, it's held at what I believe is the largest indoor water park in the United States every year. It's a place called the Kalahari up in northern Ohio. And so not only do you have a great opportunity to learn tech over the course of the week, and any topic goes pertaining to technology, but you also get to enjoy the water park, and uh, the organizers bring bands in, so there's bands at night, and um, it's just a very good time, very family-oriented, of course, thanks to, to Kids Mash, and it's um, uh, just a great time, and I highly recommend checking it out if you've never been there, and that website is codemash.org. Well, thank you very much, Jason, for taking the time out of a busy day as a CTO and a father of three young kids. Um, I really appreciate it uh, that you sat down with me again to uh, have a chat. Well, thank you so much, Len. It was uh, a lot of fun. Thank you.